Uh, I'm going to read Genesis 49 uh, down through chapter through the end of the chapter. It is a chapter that describes the last words, the last blessing of Jacob's life. So all of the seriousness, the sober feeling that we had in chapters previous as Jacob attended to his death, we now are to quiet ourselves and strain if we need to to hear the voice of one who is about to die. He's going to invite us to gather ourselves to him. He says that to his sons, but here we are privileged to be looking in. And so as we read this, we are thinking about and considering what it is that a patriarch, a dear, beloved, faithful, godly man would say to his posterity, what would you say if you needed to say all that you could or all that you should to the ones that you love who will carry your name forward? That's, that's the question that's underneath this chapter. So this begins the 49th chapter of Genesis in the first verse. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I, will wa- I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by, the, by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. 
From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There he buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Let's pause here and pray. God, thank you for your mercy that woke us this morning. We are alive, and I pray that in the same way that the physical reality that we've experienced this morning, all the mercy that we are being carried along on, I pray that it would be a spiritual reality as well. We want to not be sleepy, but awake to you and to your presence not have the evidence of death in us, but to be alive to God. This is our desire and it's our prayer and we're going to need, as we always do, we need your help for these things. So I ask God for everyone who has come, everyone who is listening, that our contexts and our circumstances, the situation we find ourselves in, would fade away and that you and your voice and your presence, your power, your ability to rule perfectly, the love and affection you have for us as a father, that these would be the things that define us in these moments. God, we confess sin and doubt and distraction. We're weary, saddened, desirous of other things. And because of this, we're so grateful that you do not treat us according to our iniquities. I pray, God, that these blessings, these words that Jacob shared with his sons, I pray that they would be opened to us. Help us to understand, help us to see, and then to apply it to today. Pray that we'd be more in awe of who you are, more desirous of living in a way that honors you. God, I ask that you'd bless your church, and if I could be an encouragement, that you would make that so. But we are gathered, we're here, we're your people, we're attentive to your word, and so we expect Spirit of God be active in our midst. Take from Jesus and give to us. 
May the fruit of the Spirit mark us this morning. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The purpose of Genesis 49 If I say the purpose of Genesis 49, it could mean a lot of different things. Jacob, of course, has a purpose in gathering his sons to himself. But when I say to you as we have read this, what is the purpose of Genesis 49, I want to ask a slightly different question, and that is to consider what is the purpose of Genesis 49 here in the book of Genesis? And by that I mean what is the purpose that Moses has in writing and recording it in the way that he did, in the order that he did? We've been hanging on to Jacob's life for quite a while, and here in the penultimate chapter of the whole book, we have this recorded in neat order. Why this? Why here? I think in a lot of ways, the answer to why this and why here is answered in what will come after Genesis, not necessarily what is in Genesis. And what comes after the book of Genesis is a long and detailed history of the people of God. It's a long and detailed history of what it means to be part of God's family. This is a record of what it looks like to say, I belong. This is who I am. This is my history. These are my ancestors. This is how we got to where we are. It's going to serve as a historical summary of sorts. In fact, I think if you look at Genesis 49 as compared to 50, Genesis 49 in wrapping up Jacob's story gives the rest of the Old Testament meaning and it undergirds all that will follow so that you could ask the question, if you were a child in Israel, hundreds and hundreds of years later, if you ask the question, how did we get here and where do I belong and what are my people like? And Genesis 49 would serve to give you some grounding to walk on. Genesis 50, on the other hand, as we'll see next week, I believe answers much more theological questions so that if you were that same child in Israel hundreds and hundreds of years later and you said not only who are we but who is our God and how did he work to get us here and what is he doing and what are his purposes, Genesis 50 is going to serve as a theological summary to give people a ground to walk on. But for now, these basic questions of Genesis 49 are going to be much more near, and there's something that I think that we all understand. Some of the most natural questions in the world are, how did I get here? Maybe even more deep than that, a little more existential, who am I? And to whom do I belong? I had a couple of conversations this week, really without even trying, that were in much the same vein. One was personal. Yesterday, we were rearranging a bunch of stuff in the office of the house, moving a million different books around, and I came upon something I just haven't looked at in a long while, a small little New Testament. It's New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. It is very, very aged and old. It looks like it would fall apart. And one of the kids picked it up, and I said, do you know what that is? And you go a couple pages into the inside of it, And this is the New Testament given at the confirmation of their great-grandfather in 1949. And they can look through it, and it's in that moment where, I mean, we're busy with the office, so we didn't take a long time. I'm not a terrible dad, but I, I stop for a minute and I think like, man, this is a moment to explain to them 
Well, do you remember who that is and what that name means and why he would have received this Bible? And there could have been an entire string that we pulled on to answer the question. They bumped into it, which would have been a clue to answer an identity question. Well, who am I and to whom do I belong and where have I come from? And what does it mean? That's an individual kind of question, specific to our family. But prior to that, and earlier in the week, in fact, a couple of different times now, I've had questions, a conversation with one of my sons, because for some reason he's been fascinated by, what is America? What are we? How did we end up here? What was happening? And so we have the conversation. Well, you see, kids, there was a lot of spices in India. And they loved to trade them, and you could get rich if you went there. And then some enterprising men said, well, I bet we could get to India if we just sailed the other way. And then they bumped into land, and they found a bunch of people, they didn't know who they were, and over a long period of time, they, they took over. There's a lot of, in that conversation, but they, they took it over, and they became colonies. And then after a long period of time of belonging and being colonies and having a sense of identity, they said, why are we paying all of our money, and why is England getting rich off of us? And eventually they said, we don't want to pay you anymore. And England said, no, you have to stay. You have to keep paying us money. And the other people said, well, how about we shoot guns at each other? And then we became America. That's our story. That's the way that it, that's the way that it works. That is not an individual who am I question, but it's still a corporate question. Because if you were my boy growing up in our day and age, and you're seeing all that's happening around, one of the questions you inevitably have to answer is, how did I get here? And what do we define ourselves by? And what explains who we are? And why do we care about the things that we care about? And I believe that in a lot of ways, Genesis 49 serves that purpose for a young child who is going to grow up knowing that he is a part of Israel But more specifically than that, the way that the history of the Old Testament is going to be recorded from this point forward, from Genesis 49 forward, you will not just be a part of Israel, you will be a part of a tribe of Israel. You will have a name, a defining name that will shape sort of who you are and what group you're a part of. Tribes, 12 specifically, will be the defining factor of Israel. And so, to explain Genesis 49, as we start out at the outset, we almost have to begin at the beginning, and I believe that verse 28 is the key to understand why is this here and how does it function. Because Genesis 49, 28 starts out with these words that I just read, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And what we've read when we've read those words is the first record of this phrase and this concept that Israel is not only a nation, but a nation made up of specific and distinct tribes. And verse 28 recommends a particular kind of reading, a particular kind of understanding. It commends to us the understanding that the the transformation and the transfer of identity has been completed in many ways from one individual before this point. You defined yourself as a part of or connected to God by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were individual connections and individual covenants made with individual men. And as of Genesis 49, 28, the history of God's people will now be corporate, and though they will still, of course, acknowledge and understand that they are connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
when they say to one another, we are a part of Israel, that will be to them an identity all unto its own. They now belong if they are a part of a tribe of Israel. That is a major shift in the way the Bible tells its, its story, the way that Scripture describes to us where we came from and what God is doing in the world. It's a major, major change, and we just saw it unfold in real time. Now, the way this takes place, there is a ceremony of sorts, and it's a sweet ceremony. It's a father speaking over his sons as they gather themselves to him. It's a sweet ceremony, but it's a ceremony nonetheless. It's a gift that Jacob gives to his children. He passes on the role of patriarch, the role of leader, to all of his kids. He sees them as tribes. And so what I'm going to do as we organize and think about Genesis 49 is something that probably seems pretty straightforward. We're just going to look at the way that he blesses his sons. Now, I want to point out something. Here's the funny thing about the word blessing. The rest of Genesis 49:28, after introducing the 12 tribes of Israel, uses this word blessed or blessing three different times. It tells us this, this is what their father said to them as he blessed them. And then I think to understand the chapter, we need to really pay attention to the phrase that comes next. He blessed them each with the blessing suitable to him. A blessing suitable to him. And we have to understand that Jacob was intent on giving a blessing suitable to each individual or else they maybe don't seem like blessings at all. In fact, I'm going to categorize the blessings that Jacob offers really as three different kinds of things. One, now bear with me here because it seems like it's opposite day, one type of blessing that, offer, that Jacob offers his children is to punish them, is to essentially say to them, well, here's the problem with you. Sometimes the honesty of a father is a blessing, but it's not always good news. And I think that's what's going to happen here. We're going to see. That's one category. There is a blessing that is a punishment or a curse. Second, and perhaps most commonly in Genesis 49, the word blessing here really means prophecy. He says it at the beginning of Genesis 49, come to me, sons, gather yourselves to me. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you in the days to come. And for a number of the sons, all that they receive from their father is a description of what's going to happen in the future and not really a moral judgment one way or the other. And then there are two major and defining examples of blessing in Genesis 49, Joseph and Judah receive more like what we would imagine if we can think of a patriarch of God's people blessing his son. They receive what I would say is more a full blessing. Prophecy is involved, but it is more a desire or a, it's a commissioning over these two, Joseph and Judah. So I thought what we'd do is we would go through each of those categories a blessing that's not really a blessing, first category. Second category, a blessing that's really just a commentary on their future. And then finally, consider what does it mean when Jacob full-throatedly says, no, 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 this is the good that will come to you and what I long to see in your life. Let's get, the, 
Let's get the bad out of the way first. Fair? That's how his blessings start, so we might as well start there as well. There are three sons that receive a word from Jacob that they would not, been able, not have been able to brag about. In fact, their shame probably would have been evident. My best friend, when I was in fifth grade, <clears throat> we were at a baseball game, and this guy was running, <clears throat> trying to steal a base, and he fell flat on his face midway between first and second brace, base. And you know, the whole crowd goes like, ooh. And it was there in the wisdom of my fifth grade friend. He said to me, ooh, I'm getting a little red in the face for that guy. You ever felt that way? You ever, been so, you ever seen something so embarrassing and so kind of touchy that you back away and you think, I'm embarrassed? I imagine that for Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Father's deathbed, gather around everyone. Let me speak a blessing over you and then listen to what happens. The first is Reuben. Now, Reuben is the firstborn. He says it. He addresses him right out. You're my firstborn, my might. You're the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. What a wonderful setup. And then he tells them, tells him, you are unstable as water. You will not have preeminence. Jacob cuts the legs right out from Reuben in front of all of his brothers. And the reason that he gives is recorded for us in Genesis 35, verse 22. So many of the details between Genesis 30 and the end of the book set up this particular moment. And this detail in Genesis 35, verse 22, is recorded concerning Reuben, and Jacob goes right back there. It tells us this in verse 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, the sons of Jacob were 12. This line, and Israel heard of it. If you're reading through Genesis 35, nothing else happens except for the little line, and Israel heard of it. And then we store that away, and we tuck that away, and it pops back out again here powerfully and amazingly in Genesis 49 as the reason that Reuben will be punished. Jacob has made note of his incestuous lust, and so Jacob says, I must give you a blessing that is suitable to you. And it reminds us at the outset of these blessings that there are real consequences to our actions. Reuben has chosen a sinful path, and he will find punishment as a result. Now, if I had to say specifically what's the moment that made me think of my friend saying, ouch, I'm in red in the face for him, it's right at the end of this moment with Reuben. Reuben gives him this line, you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, and there's a little bit of a pause, and then he just screams out, and my guess is your version of the Bible has an exclamation point there. It's almost as if aging, barely able Jacob in even describing it and handing out the blessing, just revisits all the emotion and frustration of it again. And in the moment of it, he just leans forward and looks away from Reuben. says, like, he went up to my couch. He feels it all again. The discouragement, the disappointment of it. And so Reuben receives for his actions, this 
blessing that is not really a blessing. His actions had consequences. Similarly, as you're reading through the details, especially from Genesis 30 on to the rest of the book, you may have been saying to yourself, why did they include this? It's so morbid or it's just sort of weird. And what's happening now is that some of the details that showed up in Genesis are being explained as they come back in defining factors concerning each tribe. So he moves on from Reuben to this pair, Simeon and Levi. And you might say to yourself right at the start, well, this is weird. Why would he bless them together rather than individually? And it turns out he blesses them together rather than individually because they sinned together rather than individually in his mind. And the judgment that is due them comes from an event that is recorded for us in Genesis 34. Genesis 34, 25. On the third day when they were sore, now when I say on their sore, I don't know if you guys remember this instance, but a man comes and violently takes their sister and sins against her grievously. He desires to marry her. These brothers are seething. They say, in order for this to take place, you need to circumcise yourselves first. So this whole group of men do that. And then Genesis 34, 25 says this, On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. The report of this account, it goes on in Genesis 34, the report of this account as they bring their sister back shows the dismay of Jacob in the way that they acted and treated this group of men. Not because he agreed with the sin against their sister, but because in Jacob's mind and his heart he realizes that Simeon and Levi were not out to set something right, but they were out for wrathful revenge. So the actions of Simeon and Levi here are judged harshly by Jacob. He says, in their anger they killed men. They are now marked by the violence of their swords. And then he curses their anger. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. What I'm trying to do is to point to all the connections, both forward and backward, that these last two chapters give us in Genesis. In this moment of blessing for his sons, we're learning now why particular details were included in the previous history in Genesis. So in many ways, we're looking back and we're grasping and we're seeing, oh, I see how that was so important and look what role it plays for the future. And at the same time, it's this moment as we transition from Jacob the individual to the tribes of Israel that are going to explain the rest of the Old Testament going forward. In that way, these moments of blessing, these words spoken over his sons serve as, what is a literary term, it is a Janus point, faces both directions. And what we maybe couldn't have seen when we were reading Genesis 34 and 35, we now see more fully. So these three, now remember there are 12 tribes, these three receive harsh words from their father. We said there was a second category, though. It wasn't all harsh blessing, which is an odd thing. And maybe we should just say out loud, only a father who hates his son withholds discipline. There is blessing in speaking truth and describing consequences for actions. 
even though it's not all lollipops. And so we receive with fullness the Word of God as it comes to us on those three. Next, we have seven. There are seven. They don't come perfectly in order, but there are seven who receive a kind of prophetic word. And it's more just concerning the development of that tribe. It doesn't, it's not judged morally in any significant way. In fact, there's not even a lot of detail about these particular sons. So I'm going to go through them and just say them out. And if there's something interesting, this may be a jumping off point for you, because what you could do is take each of these sons and see the way that the tribe develops down through the rest of history of Israel. In fact, that happened to me last week with Issachar. I was prepping for something else that I was teaching, and there I find Issachar showing up in Chronicles and thinking to myself, oh wait, I remember this moment that he's us back then. And so if you're the kind of person that just loves history and wants to know the tribes and wants to see how each of these develops, you have an endless supply of things to study from here. You think to yourself, well, how did this work out? We don't have time for that this morning, and so I'm going to go through these prophecies concerning each son with more or less the same detail that's given here in this chapter. We have Zebulun. Zebulun, it is said, shall dwell at the shore of the sea, shall become a haven for ships. His border shall be at Sidon. There's not much else said, and there has been much ink spilled trying to figure out, well, exactly how do the residents or the ancestors of Zebulun end up being described as dwelling near the sea? This is a prophecy saying, here's where you're going to be, this is the kind of people you will be, and that is the word concerning Zebulun. Issachar, described as a strong donkey, which I suppose you could see as an outright blessing, depending on what you like to be called. I don't know. I don't know how you'd receive it. He's a strong donkey. This is a slight mix of perhaps blessing, although I think for the most part this is a stubbornness being described, and then his maybe laziness is indicated by Jacob. There's not a strong description here except to say that he eventually ends up in forced labor because he desired a resting place that looked good to the eyes. This is Issachar's fate. Dan, it is told, will be a judge. In fact, he is the most frequently mentioned and one of the most dominant figures in the book of Judges in our Bible. So later on, when you're reading through the rest of the Old Testament and you come to the book of Judges and you find the Danites and how they interact and what happens with them, you can think back now and say, I remember what Jacob said concerning this son. Dan will be a judge. He will be one that keeps order and makes people walk carefully along the path, this image of him being a, a serpent, a viper that can strike with judgment. Though it is the shortest, Gad's prophecy, his blessing in verse 19, is perhaps my favorite. And that is because I think I can certifiably say I went to school for this and other commentator, uh, commentaries have backed me up. I can fundamentally say, so far as I can tell, this is either the greatest or one of the greatest dad jokes in all of the Bible. Because in Hebrew, there are six words. There are only six words that describe the prophecy concerning Gad, and four out of the six contain the same consonant sound. It's as though in his humor, Jacob, on his deathbed, makes a pun prophecy over Gad. 
Are you waiting for me to say the pun in Hebrew? I will not try it. But he essentially rhymes the shortest prophecy over one of his sons. And I get the impression that if there was a moment like this, this would have when all the brothers would have rolled their eyes straight back out of their heads and said, Dad, be serious. This is, these are your last moments. He shall raid Gad. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Whether you see this as a blessing or a curse or not, I think it's more of just a commentary. Here's what's going to happen. Gad is going to have to be warring. He'll lose some and he'll win some, which sounds like most people who war. Next, we have Asher. Asher receives a much better blessing, though again, we don't find Jacob commenting in any kind of moral sense, and he doesn't tie to any of Asher's actions, just that Asher will be a foodie. That's the thing that's listed here. Asher shall have pleasant and prolific food trucks is kind of the idea. That's the sense here, that he'll have a rich inheritance. He shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali, the doe let loose, bears beautiful fawns. The imagery here seems to indicate that Naphtali of all of the tribes will be one that runs free, not tied to a particular place, but one who exercises his ability to roam. And then finally, the last sort of prophetic word concerning one of the sons. We said there were seven. There's three that receive a curse, seven that receive, re, receive a kind of saying concerning their future. The last of these is the youngest, Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is a surprising one because he is seen more or less as a pawn up to this point. Benjamin seems to be the vulnerable one, the one who is doted upon, the one who was the favorite, the one who is extremely passive in all of the exchange between Joseph and his brothers. He gets passed around, he's used for leverage, he's held hostage, or he's accused of sin. And here, the word that Jacob gives to him is surprising if you've only viewed him in that light. He's a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoils. In fact, then, if you watch from this point forward, Benjamin, rather than being a passive pawn as the youngest doted upon brother, becomes a warring tribe. There will be some of the greatest military exploits coming from the tribe of Benjamin in the future. From Benjamin, Saul and Jonathan come. This description of the seven is Jacob beginning to operate in a sort of pseudo-prophet kind of way. Israel is not yet organized enough, and they don't have enough direction yet necessarily from God. There's not defined rules around the way that prophets work. And so what happens with the early patriarchs is that they serve these, these sort of threefold kind of roles. They're sort of the, the king because they're the rule of their family and the carrier of the covenant. They speak words prophetically. They are the ones who receive the word from God and then communicate it to their family and they also are a kind of priest. They, they mediate the presence of, of God to one another, or through them and to the people who they're with. And it's in that vein or that idea that Jacob is a sort of prototype of all of these characters, these roles that we're going to see in Israel in the future. It is here in Genesis 49 that he is the most prophetic, the one who speaks forward most. This is who God is, this is what he's going to do with you. And the sons receive it as such. 
in addition to the cursings of the three. And the seemingly morally indifferent prophecies concerning the seven. We have two of the sons that must be commented on, I believe, in more significant ways. I'll begin with Joseph. And we begin with Joseph, of course, because Joseph has been the dominant figure in all of Genesis from 37 up to this point. In fact, next chapter, in chapter 50, it's going to go straight back to him. And Joseph receives probably the patented, sort of the the prototypical, the stereotypical, the most general idea when you think blessing. If I told you there's going to be an old man who gathers his children to him and wants to speak a blessing over their heads, what Joseph receives is the closest thing to what you might imagine. What a gift it is to hear a father speaking over his son, that he is fruitful. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Joseph receives a blessing from his father that in many ways will be the most desired, the aspirational blessing for all of us connected to God in the future. Scripture will go on to tell us that a righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water. And Jacob here says of his son Joseph, you are like a tree by a wellspring, constantly bearing fruit, giving shade and usefulness from branches that overrun its normal boundaries. More than just the blessing that Jacob speaks on Joseph's head as his fruitfulness, though, is the recognition that Jacob has. He has come to accept and to realize the way that God has used Joseph to preserve them all. Jacob pauses and he blesses God's name as being the one who has strengthened and cared for Joseph all of these years. We saw the inner emotional life of Joseph many times. Remember we noted that? We called him the weeping one. He's just constantly crying. He's interacting with his brothers. When he finally gets reunited, he has to, he has to excuse himself. I'm sorry. He's just a little bit clamped constantly in front of them. Well, the question had remained, maybe, and you'd thought to yourself, well, what about the father? Jacob is constantly saddened. He says, my son's been taken from me. I'm so sad, I'm just going to die. And I am, for one, pleased by the look at the inner life of Jacob that we're receiving near his death. And in his description concerning Joseph, the confidence that he has about the mercy of God in the way that Joseph's life went, He describes the attacks or the opposition that he's had throughout his life as archers who had attacked him, but then sees Joseph not as a victim, but as one who was uniquely strengthened by God. His arms were made agile. I'm trying to figure out the best Legolas um, pawn I could fit in here, but I'm not well schooled enough schooled enough in the world of it. So if you think of a great Legolas uh, pun about this, see me after the service. We've got one more. Isn't he the archer guy? Right? He's like jumping over barrels and water and like constantly hitting things. That's the picture that Jacob gives concerning Joseph. What a transition and shift. Joseph, remember, who was stolen from him, 
who he was so sad over the whole time, one who easily could have been seen as the ultimate victim in his life, Jacob's blessing over him at the end is to say, you were never the victim. You were the strong one, the agile one. God strengthened you and cared for you. He was your shepherd. It was by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. There the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The God of your father will help you. The Almighty will bless you and give you untold blessings of offspring and good things. More so than your father. Jacob also foresees and foretells for Joseph an inheritance that goes beyond mere temporal things. Here Jacob is is giving a blessing where he's almost, he's, you can see him trying to stretch the bounds of the blessing as far as he can. How far are these blessings going to go? Well, deeper than deep is deep, and higher than high is high, and further than time is time. Your blessings, may they be upon your head everlasting to the hills. You ever tried to bless someone like that? You ever felt your love run over that deeply? May all of these things, he says, be on the head of Joseph and on the, bow, on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Here, prior to Genesis 50, prior to the words of Joseph himself, we know that Joseph has accepted the theological reality of what God is doing and has submitted to it, but here from Jacob's own mouth, he calls Joseph not the victimized one, not the stolen one, not the one who was wronged, not the one who was greatly sinned against, but the one who was set apart from his brothers. He describes him as a, as a prince, one treated uniquely by the God who is in control. This, to me, is a profound statement on the inner life and peace that Jacob has concerning the way that God has dealt with him and his family, and what a blessing it is to receive these words at the end of one's life. So if we say Genesis 49 is about the blessings of a dying father to their children, Joseph receives the fullest expression of what you might imagine that to be. He's not the only one that receives blessing, though. We've gone through 11, three that have received cursings, seven that receive prophetic words, basically morally indifferent, and one, Joseph, who receives the most full, time-tested, greatest expression you could imagine of blessing. The one who remains is the most interesting and significant. Judah, starting in verse 8, receives a prophetic blessing from Genesis 49, though it has been said concerning these verses in the middle of Genesis 49 that more discussion and more debate and more concern over these verses has been given than all of the rest of the chapter combined. That is because Jacob speaks both blessing but also prophecy over Judah in a way that gives all of us hope. He says, Judah, so not Reuben, who was the firstborn, not Joseph, who actually they bowed down to and had the blessings, but now Judah. Jacob tells us that Judah we should watch in a special way. We should watch Judah because one day your brothers shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The question starts to become, well, how is this going to work? He's described as a lion's cub, one who is waiting to become the ruler of the pride. He is crouching. Don't rouse him. And then this verse in verse 10, which is the most 
difficult to understand, the most glorious of all the verses in 49, there is a scepter, a sign of ruling and of power, and it will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, and then this line, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, it may be that your version of the Bible describes this phrase until tribute comes to him differently, and that is because the fullness of meaning in this phrase is so varied and so big that people can't figure out the best way to say it succinctly. There's times when it's been translated that the scepter shall not be removed until it comes to Shiloh. There's a way that you could translate the Hebrew behind it to say this. And of course, that would indicate, that would give us very, very clear impression that Judah is going to to rule until a Messiah comes. There's also been times when this, until tribute is given to him, has been described or translated as this, that there will be a scepter in Judah's hand and he he will rule until the one comes to whom it belongs. Now, however you phrase this, what is clearly being described here is a future prophetic statement where Jacob sees not only the blessing and the continuance of his family, but ultimately that God is working to bring kings from his line, and not just kings, but one who will rule ultimately and forever. And it is this prophecy concerning, this blessing concerning Judah in Genesis 49, where we start to get one of the most profound and deep and powerful pictures we get of Jesus, the Messiah who is to come. He is going to be called the Lion of Judah because what happens historically from this point forward is that the king who will rightly rule, God's chosen king over his people, David will come from Judah's line. And from here, we're introduced to this concept, to this idea that there is hope for ruling that goes beyond Judah's life. And if you follow the thread, if you follow the line from Genesis 49 through the rest of the Old Testament, you will end up on David and you will see that God himself has handpicked. And the promise that's given to Judah here, that you will rule and it won't be taken from you and it's going to continue on until the one to whom it belong comes, is going to be repeated to David. Do you remember, what does God say to David? I will put someone from your line on the throne forever. You will rule forever. It sounds a lot like the prophecy that Jacob gives to Judah. And it's also why the New Testament introduces the person of Jesus, the expected Messiah, with such an insistence that he has come from David's line. We preached at Advent last year about Jesus the Son, and one of the sons that we taught through was the son of David and traced how clearly his lineage comes from David's kingship. Ultimately, what is happening is that Jacob in his dying days, with his last breaths, speaks a prophetic blessing over Judah that does not come fully into picture or into view until Jesus takes rightful reign at the right hand of the Father on high. There is an unbroken line of ruling from Judah to the Messiah. And so it could be said, like the child hundreds of years later, who is living in Judah's line, he could ask the question, well, where did I come from and who am I and to whom do I belong? That if you said to him, oh, you belong to the line of Judah and this line will reign and you'll be connected to the king forever because your ancestor Jacob said so. 
what we are taught to see is that ultimately one day, not just those who were born physically into the line of Judah can say this, but we will all say, to whom do I belong and where did I come from? We can say, well, your ancestors said that you belong to a line of the king and you will belong forever. Revelation chapter 5 gives us this picture. It invites us to see our hope in the prophecy and blessing concerning Judah. Revelation chapter 5, this picture that John sees of heaven and the hope of heaven being the scroll that would be opened up to reveal the will of God and ultimately to, to reveal all of those whose names are written in this book of life to be received forever. And Revelation 5 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus, the one who has ultimately conquered, the one who holds the scepter forever and ever, steps into the role. He is the lion of Judah, the root of David. He steps into the role of ultimate kingship forever. And the history of God's people, the hope of the world, comes full circle. A child living 600 years following the blessings of Jacob would find solace and hope in understanding and remembering who he is. And what the story of our whole Bible tells us is that the blessings that Jacob gives to his son, specifically Judah, is an invitation to us living thousands of years later to hope for our future, to have a definition and to understand that we belong to a royal line, that we will not be lost nor forgotten, we are not powerless, that when we are bound to Jesus, we will reign forever. This tells our story. It answers the ultimate question of who am I? And how did I get here? And where are my people? And to whom do I belong? You belong to Jesus, who is a ruler in the line of David, who was a king in the line of Judah, who was a son of Jacob, who met with God. You belong. You have a place, and we will reign forever with Jesus. Let's pray. God, I ask that this chapter and all these words and all this time and all of the different threads, the beautiful picture that you have painted, I pray, God, that we would find understanding in these words that we would find hope in these words. I pray that we would see the, the unity of Scripture, the wonderful consistency of your plan and your purpose. God, I thank you for promises fulfilled. We thank you for keeping covenant. I pray that we would see that what you have done for us in Jesus would be for our blessing, for our benefit. May Jacob's blessing of his sons ultimately result in our blessing 
and the blessing of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.